You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all of the action in the wild, weird, occasionally wonderful, and this last weekend, absolutely woolly world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we went on an emotional journey. Yeah. We went through Saturday some night, Saturday night at UFC 261, we went on an emotional journey. I don't know if you could say that this event will go down as one of the all-time greats in UFC history, but I think it was certainly one of the most memorable events we've ever seen. There, there were some highs and lows in this thing. You know what? I feel like it brought us closer as a community. Because we now share a pretty harrowing lived experience yeah. altogether, you know? Like, we we can all, years and years hence, look at each other and be like, where were you when Chris Weidman's foot was flopping around? When Jimmy Jimmy Crute got the drop foot and uh, Zhang Wiley got kicked upside her head? You know, it was. it's just by the... The thing is, too... As an event, a pay-per-view with three title fights goes, we got in and out of there at a pretty brisk pace. Yeah. Finished up at a pretty reasonable hour, and yet it felt like I had aged several years. Yeah, I remember when uh, Jimmy Crute's drop foot seemed like it was going to be the wackiest thing <laughs> yes. that happened on this on this pay-per-view. Remember when... Uh, remember when Randy Brown got that one-arm rear-naked choke on Alex Oliveira, oh, and geez. we were all like... We were all like, oh, probably going to remember that one. Yeah, that feels like six nah, years ago now. That seems like it happened in the Middle Ages. Randy Brown got that choke on Alex Oliveira. This uh, this was a crazy one, man. And you're right. Like this was, I, I thought I saw some stat floating around on the internet. This one of the, you know, like the first or second shortest uh, UFC pay-per-view card with three title fights on it that has ever happened. So like they got us in and out at a reasonable time. But emotionally... I mean, this there was a toll involved here. Not only did you pay 70 bucks for the pay-per-view, there was an emotional toll to go along with this thing. Yeah, I feel like I came out of there with a few new gray hairs in the beard. You know what I mean? Suffice to say, we got a lot to talk about. We got a lot of listener mail. Uh, we're going to try to get through as much of it as we can today as we talk about UFC 261. Reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. And if you like what you hear over on this show, you should absolutely check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event, especially on a week like this, because Ben Folks and I will be over there all week long, additional MMA podcasts. If you don't get your fix from the proper, you can check out the Wednesday live chat. Uh, you can check out the Friday power hour. And if you are a true shit eating wild man, we got that Thursday movie club that drops for our top tier patrons. So if you feel like joining the team, if you can't get enough of hearing our voices, head over to patreon.com slash co-main event. 
we're just going to get right to it, man, because we got we got a lot to get through here. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash, that's C-A-C-A-G, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash, again, C-A-C-H-E in the word cash. Three rounds. As usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast, in round number one, Kamaro Usman used some of those softest punches Jorge Masvidal has ever felt to escort Masvidal into the land of wind and ghosts on Saturday. Usman retains the title, might be the top pound-for-pound fighter in the world, is definitely the BMF champ if he wasn't already, but greatest of all time? Let's all just calm down. So I'll just calm down for a minute. And in round number two, can't nobody tell you shit. You the best ever. We've been saying that shit for years. You the best motherfucker ever. Who's the best? I'm the best. Who's the fucking best? I'm the fucking best. You've been the best. And in round number three, Valentina Shevchenko just going to fuck around and wrestle Jessica Andrade because that's how fucking bored she is of absolutely dismantling the rest of the best 125-pound women's fighters in the world. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Well, I got to catch my breath for a second yeah. after doing that Pat Barry. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a pretty my... solid Pat Barry, I got to tell you. I didn't I mean, know if like you had I the said... juice to pull it off, but... Like I said at the time, man, I would pay good money just to have Pat Barry come over to my house in the morning after I wake up and get me ready for my day. Mm-hmm. Just yell, talk some fucking self-actualization shit at me. Yeah. I Honestly, I think you need that. First question, first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Cody Bernston. Cody Bernston being first will come as a surprise to absolutely no one who is a member of the Patreon. <laughs> he writes... This past weekend was a real sad one and a reminder at how cruel the MMA gods can be sometimes. Chris Weidman suffering the exact same injury as Anderson Silva did in their second fight was absolutely heartbreaking to watch. I genuinely hope Chris ends up being able to make a full recovery and is able to resume his day-to-day life without any major complications after the surgery. This was also a reminder about how you are playing with fire if you come out before your fight and detail your plan about how you'll win back the title and retire after defending it. This is probably the last big run that Chris had in him to make that dream of capturing the title a reality again, but after this injury, I just don't see how he'll be able to accomplish that. Uh... This this might have this might be Ben the Chris Weidman injury in his fight against Uriah Hall just 17 seconds into the first round basically the first striking exchange of the fight might be the strangest thing I've ever seen uh, in an MMA fight and certainly the most arresting you you posted the uh, the screen the screen grab the the uh, the excerpt from our UFC 261 Zoom fight party that we were doing with the beloved patrons on Saturday night to just to post our reactions of when this happened. And as I was watching it back, I legitimately thought for a second, did my side of the screen freeze? Because I was just sitting there with my hands on my head for like 15 seconds, kind of like unable to even process what I was seeing. And like, as Cody says, the fact that this happened to Chris Weidman after it had previously happened to Anderson Silva is some real freaky stuff. It is, man. It just... Because it's not a super common injury. You know? And to have it happen against him and then to him and 
you can't help but start drawing some parallels in other ways. He's almost the same age now that Anderson Silva was when it happened to him against Chris Weidman. Because Chris Weidman's 36. I believe Anderson Silva was like 38 at the time when it happened to him, or somewhere around that. Also, like Anderson Silva, former UFC middleweight champ. And we know that things didn't exactly go great for Anderson Silva when he came back from that. You know, he came back 13 months later, and he won, I guess, two of the next seven, I believe, although the the win over Nick Diaz, the first one back, changed to a no contest after he failed for that Thai sex juice uh, and the drug test. But this is a bad, bad injury to suffer. And you see that video of Chris Weidman, that he posted today to his Instagram from the hospital bed. And you're like, man, he is going through it. Yeah. This is some some heavy shit to deal with. And he said something along the lines of, I, you know, when the pain started to hit me and I realized what has happened, I was looking at my leg. I just, I can't believe this happened. And that is, that was the overwhelming feeling for me too. It was just, no, like, I cannot believe this. Of all the people to to have that happen to, it just feels like the MMA gods are laughing at us, are yeah. just like rubbing our faces in how cruel this whole world can be. They, 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 like, if this were a movie, the irony would just be too much. You wouldn't. You, you would be like, "Come on, tone it down, guys." It's a bit on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess, and it was good to get those updates both both from Chris Weidman and his his wife, just to let us know that the surgery was successful. That at least. You know, in the in the grand scheme of things, it seems like Chris Weidman physically will be okay after this horrific injury. I don't know whether or not anyone has commented about whether or not he will be able to continue his mixed martial arts career. But even before this loss to Uriah Hall, I believe he was two and five in his last seven fights. This makes him two and six. Uh, the man is getting up there in years, 36 years old. You know, like Cody Burnson said, it felt like Chris Weidman was, uh, you know, he had had that win over Omari Akhmedov to kind of get back to his, to at least the winning side of things in, in August of last year. But it still felt like something of a long shot that Chris Weidman would be able to put anything back together to go on a sustained run of success, not even to just to become the champion, but to be considered among the top contenders again. He would have had to string together a few wins. And now, uh, you, you know, not only that seems somewhat... Uh, uh, you know, doubtful that he would be able to do that. But like, I don't, I don't even know if this guy would return at this point. Andrew Anderson Silva ended up returning, but like I, nothing is a given, I would say at this point for Chris Weidman in the wake of an injury like this. Yeah. I mean, somebody was asking me about this in my mailbag as I was writing today. And I was thinking like, we've seen that people can return from it. Anderson Silva came back 13 months later, Corey Hill, when it happened to him in 2008, he also came back 13 months later. We know you can do it. It's a question of if you want to, if you're Chris Weidman, because it is going to be a long road ahead recovery-wise, regardless of whether he wants to fight again. But doesn't everything you know about fighters tell you that something like this makes it almost certain that he will fight again? Yeah. Just because yeah. he he doesn't want to let it end like that. And he, I'm sure, will want to get back in there just to put something else between him and that just so that that's not the last lingering memory he has of his MMA career. Like, even if he had been thinking about retiring, I think something like this makes it that he he, he could not allow himself to stop on that note. The next question this week comes to us from 18th century Scottish cabinet maker, deacon of a trades union, Edinburgh city councilor, and secret burglar. 
Okay. William, William Deacon Brody. Well, you know, if you're going to be a burglar, secret burglar is kind of the best kind you can be. Yeah, the public burglars, they don't have a long and, mm-hmm. and, and happy career. No. William Deacon Brody writes, should Uriah Hall be worried? Has the curse <laughs> been transferred to him? Now, this sounds like a joke, but did you see Patrick Cote's tweet? No. Uh, over the weekend? So Patrick Cote points out he has here's his tweet he says sorry but i think i did start this leg injury curse chain he points out that he fought crafton wallace uh early in his career wallace sustained a leg injury in that fight then cote goes on to fight anderson silva cote sustains a leg injury in that fight silva goes on to fight chris weidman obviously sustained a leg injury in their second fight and now chris weidman has suffered a terrible leg injury in his fight against Uriah Hall. Patrick Cote says, if I'm Uriah Hall, I don't feel safe. Okay, first of all, no, we are not going to compare Patrick Cote's leg injury with Anderson Silva and Chris Weidman's leg. Those are just completely different things, man. He like blew out an ACL or something. Like he hurt his knee. That's still pretty bad. Still, man. They got their whole shit broke, Chad. Snapped like a goddamn breadstick. And this motherfucker is going to go over here and be like, oh, yeah, hey, guys, I got a leg injury, too. That's like, you know, I I get tennis elbow, you break your arm, and I'm like, oh, hey, Chad, we both got arm injuries. You would be like, fuck off, Ben. This is not helping right now. You you would not want to, me to put that one in the same category. So I don't know about that one, but... I do recall on fight night, Sir Nigel here for the the live watch party pointed out that maybe Uriah Hall has now become the genie in the bottle. And, uh, you know, the next person comes along, he's going to have to go through it, but that's the only way to pass it on. You got to you got to pass on the curse. And uh, I, I just remember seeing the look on Uriah Hall's face as he was kneeling over there across the cage from Chris Wyman right after this happened. And like the cameras obviously didn't want to just stay on Weidman laying there. You could hear him screaming in agony. They didn't want to just focus on that. So instead they seemed to focus on Uriah Hall, but it was somehow worse. Well, no, not worse. Somehow also a little bit affecting to watch Uriah Hall watching Chris Weidman and the look of horror on his face. Yeah. And I mean, he handled it. He was really classy about it and everything afterwards, but it seemed like, man, Uriah Hall might need therapy for this one, too, just just I for mean, having been that close to it. If there is a person in the MMA sphere who is going to be emotionally affected by having this happen to an opponent, it's probably a guy like Uriah Hall who's, you know, been a good fighter but also been uh, l- like what I would describe as a regular human, like a, like a decent person with the emotions that you would expect from a regular person. Uh, he's been criticized at times for maybe not – like having a quote unquote killer instinct in the cage. But, you know, you can tell, and especially after his win over Anderson Silva and then this uh, freak accident, which resulted in a victory against Chris Weidman, this is a guy who, like, number one, takes this stuff seriously and, like, recognizes the accomplishments and the, the legacy of the person that he's in there against, respects that in the case of guys like Silva and Weidman. And like, isn't, isn't, doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to wake up the morning after something like this happens while he is in the cage and just be able to wash it off his back. You know what I mean? Like, this is a guy who's probably going to think about this stuff. So, uh, it sucks, obviously just 
astronomically for a guy like Chris Weidman and his family and everyone around him to have something like this happens. But like, I, it also kind of sucks for Uriah Hall because this is going to probably, uh, you know, I'm sure that, that he, he wouldn't consider this a legitimate win. That's not how he wanted to win, obviously. And now, uh, you know, I've talked to MMA fighters in the past who talk about having PTSD like symptoms coming out of fights that they've won. Uh, and you'd think that like this would be one that would stick around for Uriah Hall a little while as well. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Seinfeld character David Putty. <laughs> one of the best minor Seinfeld characters. He writes, I personally loved the big fight feel that the full arena of hyped spectators brought to UFC 261. And with three violent stoppages on the main card, the fans in Jacksonville certainly got their money's worth. But is it too soon? How did you guys feel? knowing that the fighters in the cage were probably a lot safer than the people who paid for tickets. Uh, well, given to what we, given what we saw to happen to Chris Weidman, I don't yeah. know that that logic totally extends. Uh, but we had talked about in the lead up to this thing, just about how kind of strange it would be to see a full arena of fans return to the UFC and, and cheer these fights as they happened. You know, all, the reverse of what happened at the beginning of the pandemic, when we had to get used to watching fights in the apex arena without fans, and, you know, the for the most part, I think like mentally I was able to make the leap pretty quickly. I guess, you know, we're used to having this this kind of thing, this kind of display in MMA. We were used to like an arena full of rabid fans. The only times that it really dawned on me what we were seeing and how different it was and how potentially uh, dangerous it was is when they would actually show like tight shots of the crowd. Yeah. And you would see that in the audience in Jacksonville despite the fact that the UFC uh, had handed out masks on the way into the venue and had partnered with a company to try to, uh, you know, have some manner of screening on the way into the arena. It appeared at least on my television screen that almost nobody was wearing masks in this thing. And with an indoor arena with a fairly long event, even though we mentioned the runtime here was somewhat shorter than what you might expect from a card that had three title fights, the possibility to be spreading around the coronavirus especially in Florida, seems pretty high. And I have to admit, that did set me back every, basically every time they showed the crowd. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't look like any, even anybody in there is taking any manner of precaution whatsoever. Do you think that there's any chance we find out if there was some sort of coronavirus outbreak there? Yeah. Probably not, right? Like, odds seem pretty long unless there is a, an enormous outbreak yeah. that can be traced back to UFC 261. But I think the UFC goes into this knowing full well that the odds of any kind of like super spreader event actually being traced back to UFC 261 are pretty slim. Yeah. Now that's not to say that didn't happen. It's not to say a bunch of the people who attended these fights on Saturday night, aren't going to come down with coronavirus because I absolutely guarantee you some of them will. It's like a statistical impossibility that nobody's going to get the virus from this kind of gathering. But I would be surprised if if it w if it was blamed in any way on UFC 261 and indeed blamed in any way that that resulted in significant negative mainstream media coverage. I would be pretty surprised. Well, even if they do try to come back and get mad at you later, you got those waivers on the tickets, right? Yep, the waivers on the ticket. I hope nobody talks about those waivers. <laughs> hope nobody hope even nobody. mentions that they exist. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Jacob Ferrara, who writes, I acknowledge that UFC 261 was an extraordinarily fun event, except for Weidman's leg. Fuck. Yeah. 
But while it was happening, something didn't sit well with me. The fans booed Zhang Wiley when she was walking out and then booed her as she was being announced by Bruce Buffer. We've seen that before, so no issue. However, seeing her viciously KO'd wasn't enough for these animals. They just had to boo her again as she's doing her Octagon interview with Joe Rogan. Boy, that was an incredibly stupid idea. Moments after cheering Rose throughout her, yo, I know I was racist, but now that I've won, all is forgiven, right, post-fight speech. I get that I'm sounding a lot like a Zhang Wiley stan. My last two emails have been about her. Uh, hey, you don't have to tell on yourself here, Jacob. <laughs> but come on, man. Uh, I've seen numerous people comment on this, and I think it, it bears some uh, time here on the show that basically... Uh, Zhang Wiley and uh, Kamara Usman in particular, uh, but perhaps Jessica Andrade as well, all got pretty vociferously booed uh, by the Jacksonville crowd. And, and, you know, some people positing ideas as, as to why that is, if it was like xenophobia or some manner of racism or just the fact that especially in Jorge Masvidal's case, he's obviously a Florida native yeah. and, and comes in with a lot of home state support. Uh, I feel like it would be naive for us to sit here and say that that like xenophobia or racism didn't factor in because I'm 100 percent sure that it did, because frankly, I've been to MMA events before uh, and I know how the how crowds behave. Uh, But I think a number of different things can be true all at once in a situation like this that like uh, is an event that at least on paper read like it was going to attract a certain demographic of fan to the arena going to be more predisposed to boo someone from China right now, like Zhang Wiley, probably yes, uh, is a, is a, uh, is an arena full of fans from the state of Florida also going to cheer their hearts out for Jorge Masvidal? Probably yes. So I think you had a number of different motivating factors here. Uh, some of them I would describe as just regular sports stuff. And some of them I would describe as potentially more ugly, uh, you know, racism and, and xenophobia issues. Well, the thing about booing Zheng Wiley is if it's not that you're booing her because she's from China, then what could it be? Right. Because she's done nothing. She's done, she's done nothing but win fights and be pretty delightful. She, it's not like she has any sort of controversial statements that she's made or talked any kind of shit really like even toward Rose even as Rose was saying this stuff in the lead up to the fight Wiley was cool about it she wasn't she didn't really have much of a response and was like I think she called it silly at one point it's like uh, you know you got to just focus on yourself and not think about this kind of stuff she she didn't even really take that bait so if you tell me that they were booing her for some other reason I can't tell you what the reason was uh, I mean, the like the Masvidal-Usman thing, yeah, I mean, Jorge Masvidal is a Florida guy. It's basically a home game for him. So I could see that that one, at least you have that that plausible explanation for it. The Zhang Wiley one, though, I, I don't see any other explanation for it. And, I mean, I, I, I'm glad Rose addressed it in her post-fight interview. As, you know, you, you could say that still, by, by that point, some of the damage had been done, but I'm glad that she tried to at least tell us where she was coming from on that. I did notice, though, as Jacob Ferrer points out here, I thought we had said, Rogan had said, we're not interviewing people who have just been knocked out in the cage after, right after their loss. And yet here, 
We did it a couple times where people were knocked, like basically unconscious. By the time we woke them up and got them upright again, we were going to interview them. And I was like, I, yeah. I guess, so I guess that's just over with, huh? I guess we're, we decided we're okay. I mean, it worked out okay in these instances, but uh, it, it seemed like a very clear about face on that whole policy. Yeah, it's a bad idea. I mean, it's a bad idea, as I have said now for years, just to interview fighters in the cage after the fight. I understand that you got to interview the the winners or you feel like you got to interview the winners for your broadcast and get their thoughts right after the thing happens. But like, you know, those interviews are occasionally funny. Occasionally, like somebody says something that enters into the, uh, you know, the discourse or the consciousness of MMA. But for the most part, they're just weird and awkward. And like you just competed in not only like a super emotional thing, but also an extremely cardiovascularly uh, taxing event. And it's like, even if you won, you probably don't quite have your head on straight to be able to answer questions about what happened in the fight. And numerous people always have to always, you know, say they got to go watch the fight before they fully uh, figure out what exactly happened, even when they're in there. So it doesn't make much sense to me and never has to have uh, Joe Rogan or anybody else go into the cage and put a microphone in someone's face and start asking them questions about the fight we all just watched. Like, give that person a few minutes to to collect themselves and calm down and come back to their bodies and you probably get better answers all the way around. It's doubly weird to see him interview concussed fighters, especially when he, the thing that made him say that he didn't want to do it anymore was after he interviewed Daniel Cormier in the damn cage after he got knocked out by Stipe Miocic. And Daniel Cormier is, is Joe Rogan's broadcast partner on this, on this event. So like, if you need a physical reminder of why we decided to stop interviewing knocked out fighters in the cage after the fight, Dude is sitting right next to you. Yeah. Now, I'll also say this is probably not Joe Rogan's call. Like, let's yeah. be honest. Like, Joe Rogan's going to get a lot of of uh, criticism and has, especially in the in recent times about his color commentary and his interview and all interviews and all this other stuff. Uh, even if Joe Rogan is not totally keen on doing this, it probably was not his idea. And I assume that word came down from someone above Joe Rogan's pay grade that, like, hey, especially in the championship fights. We're going to interview the winners and the losers. And maybe he could have vociferously or, or strenuously argued against that. I don't know if he did or not. We're not privy to those discussions, obviously. But uh, I'm not going to full on blame this on Joe Rogan when I assume that it was a production decision probably made by someone else. Yeah. You think you think this is, came all the way from the top? Mickey Mouse himself was like, mm-hmm. you get in there and you ask Jane Wiley if that was stopped too soon. Yeah. Luke Skywalker made the call for this one. Next question this week comes to us from Jay Gargiulo over on Patreon. He writes, so John Wayne Paul took it to notes in order to properly dunk on Dana White. He made several very legitimate points for which Dana cannot respond to without lying or admitting that the UFC has an exploitative business model that is centered on paying their fighters unfairly. Is it possible that Paul, the societal menace, may actually be someone who moves the needle in the right direction for the fighters? Has Dana White become such an odious ghoul that between him and vapid YouTube quote-unquote personality, the latter clearly has a firmer grasp on reality. I'm conflicted. Please discourse. Uh, so I saw this happen yesterday, and I saw a bunch of people eventually, essentially give this take, like saying, you know, maybe uh, John Henry Paul isn't the, the guy that we thought he was. Maybe he's a better guy than we had, than we, than we had given him credit for up to this point. Without delving too far into... Uh, the stuff that Davey Paul had to do the week leading up to his Ben Askren fight up to and including denying a sexual assault. Uh, we are dealing with a pretty low bar, man. 
if uh, the only thing that you have to do to like win the support of people in the MMA bubble is just come out and be like, hey, maybe it's not cool that the UFC keeps 80 to 85% of the profits and gives the fighters 15 to 20%. That's, that's a low bar in terms of, you know, being a quote unquote good person or being on the, the right or wrong side of that argument. I will also say uh, that Dougie Paul does not give a shit how much MMA fighters make. And he is not out here uh, through any kind of meaningful or altruistic reasons making this argument. Yeah. He is saying it because he wants to burn Dana White. Mm-hmm. And an easy thing to burn Dana White about is that the UFC is robbing all of its fighters blind. Uh, well, Big Sammy Paul and all of his friends are at least allegedly pulling down millions for their celebrity boxing fights over on the Trillers. So I'm not going to go too far out of my way to pat either of the Paul brothers on the back for taking it to notes to make what seems like a super obvious point. Yeah. I mean, this is a savvy self-marketer seeing a vulnerability that he can exploit. That basically Dana White's going to talk shit about you. And if you're if you're his in his situation here, you hear that and you go, okay, here we go. I got to respond and it's good for me. I got to keep the whole like hamster wheel of public attention spinning. So I got to come back at him. Here's a thing that I can... I could point out, which is that in my third ever boxing match, I made more than almost any UFC fighter is going to make. And the thing is, I agree with you that he is not doing it because he genuinely cares about fighter pay or that he wants to see that situation improve and he is driven by that cause. But he's also not wrong to point this stuff out. You right. know, that to point out that the reason that those two things are happening that the UFC fighters are not able to get a bigger share of the revenue and why he is able to make so much for his third pro boxing match is just like a structural difference in the sports that was put there on purpose. It's not like it just happened on accident that the UFC ended up keeping this much of that. That that is the plan. That is the whole business model. And he may be doing it for purely self-promoting reasons He's just, he's just trying to go out there, get himself into another rivalry wherever he sees an opportunity to keep people talking about him. He's going to lunge right at that. But he's also making a fair point. And, I, I mean, I know it kills us all to have to admit that. To have to say that, you know, Jake Paul is actually telling us something that we've been saying for a while now. I also wonder, though, whenever people like you and I start talking about fighter pay, we are always reminded by a large subsection of MMA fans that they don't give a shit. Right. And that they are annoyed by the the conversation at all. They think John Jones already makes plenty of money. He wants them to shut up about being underpaid. And I wonder if something like this, if it comes from somebody else who is like, hey, look at me and look at what I've been able to do just because I don't have, you know, I'm not struggling from the lack of a promoter, clearly. I'm like, it's not like not having Dana White in my life is really holding me back as far as my nascent boxing career and I'm making and keeping way more of the money. I wonder if there's anybody out there that is forced to think about it a little harder if this is the source that it comes from. I kind of hate that that's even possible, but it seems like there must be some people out there who they're not going to listen when, you know, John Nash from Bloody Elbow is telling you about the SEC filings, but they can't help but hear about uh, Jake Paul and Dana White talking shit to each other via social media. Yeah. 
Probably not would be my guess. Like, I don't know if there are too many deep thinkers in the entire sphere of people that you just discussed. Uh, and I'm sure to the extent that there were, their response would be, well, fuck this guy anyway. Uh, it was interesting, actually, at the UFC 261 post-fight press conference. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, John Morgan from MMA Junkie asked Dana White about potentially partnering with the Paul brothers on any kinds of fights. And Dana White, like, who is almost never interesting when discussing his own business, but will occasionally almost say something interesting when he's just sort of like off the cuff in it, when he's just sort of like talking about something else that maybe he hasn't fully been briefed or prepared an answer on. Like when he asked, when he was talking about Triller, when John Morgan asked him about Triller, not only did he say that he thinks their pay-per-view numbers are inflated, which is something that we've heard from other people, but he also walked right up to the line of saying he kind of thinks maybe those fights are fixed. He said like he wasn't sure what to think about the Ben Askren fight. He said it still doesn't make any sense to him. He said, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he said something very, very close to he, meaning Paul, is getting handpicked opponents and who knows what else, what else is going on over there is what he said. Something very close to that. So it's like he, he, he said that he did, doesn't understand the, uh, how if Felipe Paul could ever beat Ben Askren and then also added in this thing of like, who knows what's going on with the matchmaking and the stuff at, at Triller. And, you know, that was the day before Paul then fires back, taking it to notes by saying all this stuff. So, like, it was, uh, I don't know, like, obviously, you have to take every single thing Dana White says with a certain amount of skepticism, a healthy amount of skepticism, as we talk about a lot on this show and as we have learned over the years in this sport. But it was interesting to me to hear a guy who knows a thing or two, at least about promotion, kind of, you know, maybe he's just throwing shade, but he did kind of put his toe on the line of of intimating maybe there's there's something else going on with these matchups. Man, it's always other people's fights who look fixed, huh? You know, whenever well, anybody yeah. tries to say that shit, like we had this conversation before where everybody's always looking at a fight and thinking like, oh, yeah, that, that's got to be fixed, thinking that it's way easier to make that shit look right than than it actually is. I don't know. Or maybe he's implying something else is going on over there at Triller. Who knows? And then you got, of course, the thing with Daniel Cormier puts his hot dog down uh, for long enough to go over and get in Jake Paul's face uh, in the during during the UFC 261 broadcast. I don't know why anyone has not made that video with the with the little Wayne soundtrack yet. The Daniel Cormier walkout song, him putting his finger in Jake Paul's face, because that seems like it's right there. Uh, But he's he's on his show with Ariel Helwani today, essentially challenging Jake Paul to an MMA fight saying I'll rip this kid's face off and all this other different stuff. Now, clearly, there is no universe where we think that could happen. But considering Jake Paul's comments over the weekend, I did have to stop one moment to reflect, A, a Paul brother versus Daniel Cormier in an MMA fight probably does better business on pay-per-view than any of your celebrity boxing fights had done leading up to this. Uh... And B, just there, there is some irony in that for Paul to point out, hey, we make all this money in Triller. And then Daniel Cormier to challenge him to an MMA fight just to think, well, if those guys could actually fight in some manner of independent venue, that could potentially be your biggest pay-per-view sporting event of the year. Man, but we just know it, it'll never happen. The, the Paul brothers have got to be thinking, what a... What a godsend MMA and MMA fighters and MMA fans are for their personal brand of trollery because yeah. man, we are we are so easily baited 
we are just so easily drawn into this stuff and, you know, triggered, trolled. And this that's what they do. That's their whole thing. That's what they want to do. And we just keep lining up to take another kick at that football. You know, like we we will play right into that every single time. And they they must just be so grateful to have discovered this about us. Easiest population they ever trolled. Yeah. Man. By far. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, comment, or concern you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, much of the intrigue surrounding a rematch between Kamara Usman and Jorge Masvidal over the UFC welterweight title was how Masvidal would do, given the benefit of a full camp. Obviously, the first time they fought, he came in on very short notice. This time around, he, he got the time to be prepared. And yet, Kamara Usman just seems to get better and better and better as he thoroughly handles Jorge Masvidal in this fight. One of the most picture-perfect straight punch knockouts you will ever see in your life a minute and two seconds into the second round of this thing the first time in his ufc career that jorge masadal has been knocked out what can you say i guess first of all about the performance of kamaru usman a guy who in his last couple of fights as i have seen posited elsewhere you know could have gotten complacent could have uh, rested on his laurels and come to the cage with the with the skills that brought him to the dance, so to speak, but has shown absolutely no sign of complacency and has only shown that he is going to go ahead and get better and better and add to the toolbox and be out here knocking people out on the feet. It's amazing, man. I, I don't I don't know quite what to say about it other than the fact that that uh, Kamaru Usman is that dude. He is who we thought he was. Yeah, it's amazing to think that. Kamaru Usman now seems significantly better and scarier than he was a year ago when he was also the champ. Like, he he was already really damn good then. And now, especially after having a little more time over there working with Trevor Whitman, it seems like that, that striking aspect of his game has really come along. And if you're looking at him now and trying to figure out where you beat him, I don't know what to tell you, man. You you got your work cut out for you. Like Jorge Masvidal, like he had other than you know getting he, he got some of those striking exchanges that he wanted kind of early on and and you know managed to land a punch here or there it landed a couple of good shots but also just never really had any prolonged period in this fight where things were going his way and I I, I don't know I like. Everybody who's sitting around right now looking at Kamaru Usman trying to come up with a a game plan for him, it's got to be tough because I don't know where you beat him. Like Colby Covington is a guy who has done the best against him, been the most competitive, and seems like he's going to be next up. But the way Usman's been looking lately, it seems like that fight is going to be less competitive the second time around. Yeah, uh, 
I agree with that. This is just the second time in Jorge Masvidal's career that he has been knocked out. Did you see the videos of these two knockouts that the Kamaru Usman knockout is almost exactly the same punching combination as the Rodrigo Dam knockout from World Victory Road back in uh, 2008, where like a guy throws the jab and then kind of uses that jab to paw down Jorge Masvidal's defense, pushes his hand down, and then fires a straight shot that hits him right in the jaw. It's like, it's they they look like copies of each other, these two knockouts from you know, years and years apart in the career of, of, uh, Jorge Masvidal. I don't know if that's something that Trevor Whitman and, and Kamara Usman knew and, and like tried to plan out, but uh, speaking of freaky, also freaky that like, uh, that's basically the combination that knocks George Masvidal out. Is that that one that we saw? Well, I mean, whatever leads to you landed a super hard right hand is probably a good bet, but also hell of a time to go out there and say that God didn't bless this man with that power in his hands to be able to go out there and hurt somebody. And it must suck to live that way. And then he just comes out there and just puts it right through your head. Jesus like that. I mean, and that's, I wrote about it today a little bit because I saw Ben Askren responding to people where I think people were like, Hey, how, how about now? Like (laughs) the guy who knocked you out and was mocking you on the mat and all that kind of stuff. And they showed that highlight over and over. And now it's his turn to lay there on the mat. And he made the remark that he doesn't believe in karma. Just that if you fight long enough, some bad shit is going to happen to you. (laughs) It's like, yeah, man, that's, that's not exactly better, you know, (laughs) because now at least, at least if it was, if karma was the thing that got it, there was a, there would be a way to avoid it. You could just be a nice person. But no, this fight game does not care if you're a nice person. If you hang around in there long enough, it's going to be your turn to lay there on the mat while everybody's looking at you. Kamara Usman now, uh, 19-1 and overall, has not lost since his second professional fight back in 2013. Uh, And undefeated in the UFC, his fourth straight welterweight title defense, successful welterweight title defense. So you know where the conversation is going to go because it goes this same place anywhere, anytime anyone has an extended run of success. Usman himself says he considers himself to be the best pound for pound fighter in the world. I'm not necessarily going to argue too strenuously against that, but we always got to do the greatest of all time thing, man, in this sport. And I feel like the greatest of all time, discussion and argument and contender list change changes by the week, by the month, by the day, by whatever the last thing we just saw was. Uh, but I don't know, man. I just like, obviously he and George St. Pierre are very different athletes. They have very different careers. They even fight in like kind of different eras, really, even though George St. Pierre just returned a couple years ago to defeat Michael Bisping from, for the middleweight title. But like Kamar Usman fights in this much different UFC landscape where we are trying to do these fast turnarounds with our champions, basically so we can get gold on the poster and have a thing to uh, to promote the pay-per-view with. George St. Pierre, not necessarily so. But even if you just uh, you know consider George St. Pierre's second title reign after he came back and reclaimed the title from Matt Sarah, uh, he was champion for something like five years, man. And just like beat every top contender that the UFC could possibly throw at him and I just like Kamaru Usman is amazing. He's he's uh, 
everything you could ask a champion to be at that weight class. But like, I, I just need to see a more sustained run of success for me personally before I'm going to start having the George St. Pierre conversation. Yeah. I also just, I just don't care about that conversation. I would rather us just focus on what's happening now and enjoy what Kamar Usman is able to do. And the fact that he's still getting better and that he he's, that guy's a joy to watch at this point. And uh, I, I would rather us not get dragged into that same predictable conversation that we love to have every single time. And just just let's see what the guy can do. Especially because, you know, it looks like you're going to do the rematch with Colby Covington. But then you have the potential for some interesting stuff in the future. You know, Leon Edwards is hanging around out there. I know the Wonder Man would like to get another title shot before his career wraps up. And he's an interesting stylistic challenge. Like There are some still some interesting fun fights that we could see for Kamaru Usman. Let's. We don't have to fantasy matchmake him against the ghost of George St. Pierre is all I'm saying. Well, anytime you got to have this GOAT discussion, you know the MMA gods are listening and exponentially increases the possibility that Kamaru Usman could lose that next fight to Colby Covington. Just saying. Why, Just would saying you say, why would you do that? I've been around, man. I've been around. As the old man sitting in the back corner telling you kids how this MMA stuff works... I just have the the obligation to say anytime you start one of these discussions where you start talking about a guy as the goat, he's going to lose, man. That's what happens. Man. That is what happens. Please not to Colby Covington, though. We saw the guy going to show up at this event in his, his camo sport coat doing his usual Colby Covington. I mean, come on. We, we've been through so much of that already. We cannot handle that guy as champion. I saw Colby Covington doing an interview with the media wearing a defund the media t-shirt <laughs> also what does he know what that means who, who funds it right now exactly hmm? just wearing a shirt no idea what it means <laughs> on that note let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two ben what's your are you fucking kidding me i have a I have an inkling that it's welterweight title related well not just that but your guy, Conor McGregor, he had the Twitter app open, you could say, during UFC 261. Now, there's something about the 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 desperate need for attention that Conor McGregor seems to have. Whenever there are fights going on, the MMA world's attention is focused on a certain direction. He has to find a way to try to turn that attention back toward himself. And we know this. Like, this has been a a remarked upon phenomenon before now. But this time, I'm going to read you two tweets here, Chad. Uh, first of all, the he's watching Usman's knockout of Jorge Masvidal and writes, quote, Usman even copying my shots now. Am I to fight this guy at some stage? I think so. Can't be copying my words and my shots and not get a smack for it. I like 170. It's mine soon. And then he's going to post this clip of he and Dustin Poirier fighting. The clip is from uh, round one of that fight, by the way. It is, uh, let's say, leaves out some important context of what goes on to happen in that Dustin Poirier-Conor McGregor rematch. But, fine. He sees a guy going out there, get a big knockout. He likes to remind people that he sometimes knocks people out too. Uh... Usual Conor McGregor stuff. But then there's this. 
referring to Chris Weidman's leg injury. Hoping Chris Weidman has, <clears throat> has full recovery. Never nice to see. Crazy is the calf kick. No skill, balance, or flexibility, or anything does it take. It's like watching a punt of a pigskin in the 50s. Up the yard! Crazy how it can go either way. One great for you, or real bad against. I kind of feel like we weren't talking about Chris Weidman by the end of that tweet. You know what I'm saying? I feel like maybe Conor McGregor's still stuck on the uh, the calf kick as concept a little bit, and is trying to suggest that it's sort of a bullshit move. Doesn't require skill, balance, or flexibility, or anything. Are you fucking kidding me, man? Can't you just let some things be about other people? Does it always have to be about you? Just... Kamaru Usman goes out there, defends his title, look great. That's good for Kamaru Usman, man. Chris Weidman breaks his leg. That's a bummer for Chris Weidman. Not an opportunity to talk about how kicks are bullshit. Fucking kidding me? What are we doing? Fucking kidding me. Nothing like a fringy top 10 lightweight calling out the welterweight champ. I love it. I will accept a Conor McGregor, Kamaru Usman fight under one stipulation. And that is, if Conor McGregor loses, he has to give the pub that he just bought, the marble arch, to the old man that he punched. Okay. Inside the pub. Inside that very pub. Has to give it to him. Has to sign over the deed of the marble arch to the old man. That's the only, that's the only circumstance that I will accept in this fight. Again, I think that old man is like in his 50s or something, but we're just going to keep calling him an old man. That's fine. Uh, also... Am I out of line for pointing out that at this point, Conor McGregor seems to encapsulate all of the negative characteristics, all of the same negative characteristics that people contend that they hate John Jones for, but without the generational fighting skill? I mean, if you're out here hating John Jones and loving Conor McGregor, I don't know, man. Might be time to take a long look in the mirror. Seems like they... uh they're kind of the same dude outside the cage. Is this your oh, my are you fucking me? Yeah. Me? No, I haven't even got there okay. yet. <laughs> speaking of, speaking of uh, being online, Ben, we remarked on this during the watch party. Someone commented, let us know that this had happened. In the wake of the Chris Weidman leg break against Uriah Hall, immediately after UFC President, President Dana White jumped on social media and tweeted a slow-mo short video of the Weidman leg break, which would be bad enough to begin with, but captions it with, quote, the first fighter in UFC history to win without a single strike thrown. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, that seems like a weird time to break out that that nugget of information, that trivia tidbit that seems like it is a swipe at both Chris Weidman and Uriah Hall immediately in the wake of one of the most horrific injuries that we have ever seen inside the UFC. I will say Dana White went back reportedly and deleted this, deleted the tweet, which for him, he usually doesn't do that. But he went back and, and reportedly deleted this one. I guess, are you fucking kidding me, man? That can't possibly be your takeaway from this fight. That can't be it. That can't be what you were thinking as you sat cage side watching Chris Weidman get stretchered out of the arena after his leg literally exploding against the leg of Uriah Hall. Man, also, who wants to see a slow motion replay of that? I People were asking me about the number of times they showed the replay after it happened. I, as, as of this moment right now, have still only seen that leg break once, and it was as it was happening live, 
And then if I could go in and take that out of my brain, I would. Anytime I see somebody even look like they're about to post that video or a screenshot or something, I'm scrolling right past that shit. I do not want to see it again. Especially not in slow motion. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's gonna go for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, Thug Rose, Thug Rose, Thug Rose, the first female fighter in UFC history to recapture a title after she has lost it. Now, Rose Namajunas is once again your women's strawweight champion. Minute and 18 seconds, all it took in this one. I tell you what, I uh, I felt like Rose Namajunas was a live dog in this one. But I would never have guessed that she was going to go out there and get herself a first-round knockout victory against Zhang Weili, who is a tough-ass opponent to deal with in this kind of fight. But a perfectly placed left kick to the jaw puts her down, jumps on her with those hammer fists. Now, Zhang Weili did not like the stoppage there. But when you go back and you see the replay, you're like, wait, that... That is a very understandable stoppage and just a great performance by by Rose Namajunas. First of all, tell me what you were expecting in this fight because I was expecting us to be in a a way more tactical battle for a, lo- a much longer amount of time. Yeah. Did Rose just catch her by surprise here? How did you see that? We talked about it before it started, not only that it seemed like the most competitive title fight that was going to be on this card, not only according to the odds, but just sort of according to what I think conventional wisdom said could happen. Like, I don't think anyone was going out of their way to pick Rose in this fight. And I think if we thought she was going to be, if she was going to win, I think, you know, like you said, we thought it was going to be a a war of attrition of sorts that she was going to have to like stay on her bicycle, move around the cage, not really let Zhang Wiley get set to throw the power shots that she likes to and kind of pick her apart from the outside, which is something that Rose Namajunas is, is capable of doing. Uh, and really I thought the wild card was going to be whether or not we would wind up on the ground because that's where you could see Rose Namajunas, uh, using some of her skills to get a stoppage here. I did not expect her to kick Zhang Wiley right in her jaw, but, uh, that's what happened. And clearly, uh, you asked, did she surprise her with it? Like, it seemed like a shot Zhang Wiley didn't see coming. And of course, the, yeah. the old cliche tells us those are the ones that are going to knock you out. This particular head kick didn't land with the sort of like thunderous crack that we've seen some others land. But like you kick someone right in their face, right in the in the jaw. It looked like Wiley maybe thought uh, Rose was going to throw a low kick or yeah. a body kick, but she ended up going upstairs with it. And like you get kicked right in your face when you don't expect it. Uh, chances are you're going to get knocked out and then someone's going to have to explain you to you later what had happened. So... Uh, that's that's how it went down, man. Yeah, it did seem from the way she was reacting as soon as Rose went to throw the kick, like she's trying to pull her legs back, like she thinks that uh, it's head low. And it's, you know, off of Rose's front foot there, and she's able to just kind of like flick it out there and does totally catch her by surprise and drops her there. What do you do now? 
with with Rose and Amuse because that that is a it was a huge win, emotional win. I mean, something you're watching her walk back to the uh, like leaving the cage and walk back to the, the dressing rooms where she's got the belt on and she's just like crying tears of joy. And I it made me wonder like, are we in one of these situations at Women's Straw right right now where you, it's going to be a, a super competitive division between a few different people? And like, is there is, is dominance going to be hard to come by for anybody? Are we always going to end up in some sort of like ongoing round robin? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to note that if you go back to 2000, basically the beginning of 2015, Rose's only losses are that split decision to Karolina Kovalkiewicz at UFC 201 and then the slam KO to Jessica Andrade at UFC 237. The Andrade fight, obviously she came back and... and uh, avenged that loss via split decision at UFC 251. She's already beat Joanna Jacek twice. So if you're Joanna Jacek, your prospects probably dwindled just a bit here. Uh, you know, the, it's it's tough to know what you'll do contender-wise. The UFC, especially in recent times, has liked to go, to go right back to the immediate rematch, especially when uh, a champion that it seems high on loses his or her title. I don't necessarily know if that's that's the right move here, just considering how this one ended. Uh, but aside from that, like you know, in that division, you've got you've got some of the like known the known faces, right? The usual suspects, I guess you would say. Uh, people like Claudia Gadella, Michelle Waterson, Tisha Torres, Carlos Barza are all still highly ranked in that in that division. And then, of course, you got uh, somebody like Mackenzie Dern, who's kind of creeping on a come up there. But what you do immediately with Rose is is not a question that I'm that I can answer with any certainty, man. It just it seems like a, a kind of a question mark, especially if you're not going to do that rematch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the thing to me that's really impressive about like Rose Namajunas has been through a real journey in this sport already, and to like. I was surprised at the, to learn at the set that she is the first woman to recapture a belt. Uh, yeah. And she, you look at like some of the stuff that Rose Namajunas has, has the, the ups and downs that she's been through and that her willingness to be pretty public about a lot of the stuff and a lot of the difficulties and everything. It wasn't that long ago that she's kind of talking about walking away. And then now you show up, you're the champ again. And, uh, I don't, there's something about that moment where Pat Barry is yelling at her like, who's the best? And, you know, she was saying it to herself before the fight. She was standing there in her corner saying over and over, I'm the best. And even like the way she's saying it, the call and response style to Pat Barry after the fight, it's like, there's some part of it like she's trying to talk herself into it. And you're like, man, yeah. now's the time when it should be the easiest to get yourself to believe. You just went out there and kicked Zhang Wiley right in the face. Like now you, you, you should feel like the best. And yet... I don't know. It, it it always seems like with with Rose, there's a lot less of the posturing going on that we normally get from fighters. A lot of the, the stuff that they're all kind of going through and the, the battles they're fighting mentally seems just like a lot closer to the surface with her. Yeah, I will freely admit that when she was standing over in her corner saying, I'm the best over and over again in the pre-fight, my, immediately, my immediate response was, uh-oh. <laughs> like I don't know why, but I didn't. I like it was like the Diego Sanchez yes cartwheel or something. I'm like my immediate response was not. Well, she seems confident and uh, is ready to go and face this challenge, but then uh, she was incredibly like better better prepared to face the challenge. I think than any of us had thought headed into the fight. Uh, so more power to her and you know whatever 
uh, motivational tapes she and Pat Barry are listening to uh, down there in Colorado. Pat Barry's motivational right. tape is just his own voice. Right. Uh, Rose is a is an is an enigmatic figure, I think, to say the least, and has been for some time in this sport and in some ways uh, has been be- become beloved by some people because I think they like that kind of like realistic, no, no posturing, frankly, weirds mobile style that she has where like you have interviewed her about how she might just quit and go farm at some point. And like then she shows up in the in the lobby on of the hotel on fight week and like plays the classical piano in front of everybody and is incredibly talented at that. Uh, she said some really dumb stuff in the lead up to this fight. Uh, some incredibly dumb stuff and then kind of retracted it afterwards, which certainly does not differentiate her from a lot of people in this sport, just in terms of what they say, either to motivate themselves or to try to sell a fight compared to what they're, what they want to say after it's over. Uh, but it was the first, it was the first thing that Rose has said over the years that I, that I was able to look at and kind of be like, well, that, you should not have said that part out loud. Like if you want to think that in your own brain to like motivate yourself, that's fine. But, uh, you know, saying you want to beat Zhang Wiley because she's from communist China is, is, is a dumb thing to say. Uh, but for the most part, like Rose has established like a, a positive rapport and a positive, uh, reputation in in this sport and like to see her become as you said the first woman to recapture the title that she had lost in ufc history i think was probably a feel-good moment for a lot of people yeah yeah all right that's gonna wrap it up for round number two we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number three even sure what can be said of Valentina Shevchenko at this point besides wow I guess she goes out there against Jessica Andrade in the women's flyweight title fight at UFC 261 Ben basically just out wrestles her through a round and a half including some some gift worthy takedowns man some real highlight kind of throws and trips here from Valentina Shevchenko uh leading to this cr- ugly crucifix position in round number two, where she basically just blasts Jessica Andrade with, with punches and elbows until she eventually gets the stoppage. Uh, Jessica Andrade was very honest about it in the post fight and kind of said, we did not expect that. We thought we would get deeper into this thing. And then maybe the wrestling would become a factor, but clearly Valentina Shevchenko is doing this thing that we have associated with John Jones in the past of being so far ahead of everyone else that she is going out there and like saying to herself, okay, you think this is how you're going to beat me? Well, maybe that's what we'll do. And I will show you that I am superior, you know, to, to you in the thing that you consider yourself to be best at. This was her fifth consecutive women's flyweight championship defense. She has, as we have discussed in the past, essentially cleaned out this division seems leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. The UFC seems high as a kite on her as a, as a promotional entity and as a fighter, what on earth at this point do you do with Valentina Shevchenko? Uh, and is it, is it time for another Amanda Nunes fight? Yeah. I heard Dana White afterwards saying that that's not really on the radar right now, 
But as they each continue to just clean out their divisions, and for Amanda Nunes, two different divisions, you do think that maybe at some point that just becomes the only thing left to do. Because it felt like we're already sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel to come up with a challenger for Valentina Shevchenko here. Like Jessica Andrade, you know, she had one win. Then we say, okay, we need somebody to fight Valentina. She's ready to fight fucking five times a year, seemingly. Like, so somebody's got to get in there and do it. Sure, Judge Gondraj can get in there. Uh, you know, one of the biggest underdogs on the card. I didn't expect this one to be very competitive, but I also thought if you'd have told me before the fight, we're going to be mostly wrestling in this one, I'd have gone, okay, good news for Judge Gondraj. And yet, she never came close at all to control in that aspect of the fight even when she had some moments where uh, maybe in the first round you're a little bit surprised you didn't expect to be taken down five times by, by Valentina Shevchenko she comes out in the seconds trying to get some takedowns of her own and then just gets reversed and thrown back down again and just absolutely mauled on the mat like that's got to be just pretty dispiriting for her and yet Valentina Shevchenko said that you know afterwards basically that it was a message to people like hey if you're looking and thinking about how you're going to beat me like where my weaknesses are I'm going to save you some time and tell you that there aren't any and you go shit yeah no you know what that checks out that kind of checks out after what we just saw here I, I mean Amanda Nunes has this fight coming up with uh, Juliana Pena you could think of like one or two other things you can do with Valentina Shevchenko but Neither one of them seems like they're anywhere close to falling off at this point. I, I would think it's, uh, you're going to reach a, a point eventually where the only thing to do is to have them fight each other. I can also, though, see why if you're Valentina Shevchenko and you feel like I'm absolutely smashing fools at 125 pounds, why do I want to go up a weight division and deal with that again? Yeah. Especially since she has really established herself at this point as a known commodity in in fight circles, right? She goes out there. She's got the she's got the gun tattoo. We know that she is a competitive shootist on the side. Uh, she whips some ass, and then she does the uh, traditional dance in the center of the cage. And we all, you know, go home feeling however it is that we feel about what we just saw. The UFC seems, as I said before, pretty high on her uh, as an individual. Uh, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure how far you go here with 125 is she's just killing people. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like the same kind of dominance that is going to make you a, a super popular draw. And maybe they're, maybe they're angling her towards some manner of international uh, events, whether in Russia or, or somewhere else, if, if we can get back to doing that kind of thing. But I don't know. It's just, it's, she seems incredibly talented and it kind of seems like there is, it's a shame that there's not, more competition in that division or like a better foil for her, someone who could really, you know, make their rivalry a thing. Yeah, because it is it's a struggle right now to find anybody who you can throw in there. And more and more, it's just going to start to seem like you're you're lining people up for an execution, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff and then we can get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, you probably saw this, but... Uh, it came across the the news wires this week that we're going to do Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori for the UFC middleweight championship. That'll be at UFC 263 on June 12th. Uh, I don't know if it would be accurate to say you have passed up Rod Robert Whitaker for this for this scheduling, uh, but it's not necessarily the title fight I think that a lot of people wanted to see get booked. 
And look, man, I, I understand why you're doing this because it's kind of the same thing that I said before. It's this era of the UFC where the events are coming fast and furious and we've gone ahead and stacked a couple of these pay-per-views with three championship fights. There is essentially no uh, alternative but for a couple of champions to make quick turnarounds here so that we have championship fights that we can use to promote these pay-per-views. And, and uh, Israel Adesanya is going to be the gold on the poster at UFC 263. I'm also just saying, though, this approach is how you fuck around and wake up one day and your middleweight champion is Marvin Vittori. <laughs> I'm just saying. Wow. Okay. I saw that, though, that, again, we're doing the, we have the date on the calendar first, and then we're going to decide based on who's available, who will get the title. So, like, Robert Whitaker saying that he got offered the fight, like, basically right out of the cage. Man's got to go back in quarantine just to get home and then get back in training camp. Then you want to turn right around and fight in June? Like, I'm I'm just I'm glad Robert Whitaker is such a chill dude, you know, because you needed to be a chill dude to just be like, nah, mate, can't do that one. Not gonna do that title fight. Go ahead, and give it to somebody else. I'll catch you down the road and not seem even bothered by it at all because I can see a lot of other people getting pissed off. Um, Jed, my just saying stuff this week. Uh, I'm gonna read to you a headline here from MMAfighting.com. Triller files lawsuit against illegal streamers alleging $100 million in damages from Jake Paul versus Ben Askren card. So, filing a lawsuit in California uh, about people illegally streaming this last pay-per-view. Quote here, a statement from a Triller spokesperson. It's shocking to think a theft so grand can be done so blatantly and brazenly and steal with no remorse. There is zero difference between what they did and walking into a market, stealing tons of a product, and selling it at a discount in the parking lot. It's neither civilly nor criminally any different, and we are prosecuting to the fullest extent of the law. There were far over 2 million illegal streams akin to hundreds of millions of dollars. Further down, people put a lot of hard work, time, and money into creating a product for the consumer, and having it stolen and resold is terribly damaging. The good news is they are not protected by VPN masking or other firewalls as their activities are criminal and grand theft, so we will ultimately find them and prevail not just for us, but for content creators in general. We intend on working closely with the authorities as well to stop this highly illegal behavior. Jed, I'm just saying, welcome to the pay-per-view business, Triller. Good luck. Yeah, just saying. They might want to call Dana White because mm-hmm. he's got all those guys' names and numbers. Yeah, he probably he's probably watching those guys' houses. This would be a hell of a yeah. time to just be like, "Hey, uh, next time you're watching their houses, can we get on on that? Can we, is there space in the van in the surveillance van?" It takes a lot of nerve, I think, to put on the shows that Triller puts on and then choose and then accuse other people of being the thieves, doesn't it? Wow! Wow! Okay. Maybe the thie- the true thieves are the friends we made along the way. They brought out Justin Bieber here for you ungrateful motherfuckers. And you're going to go steal their stream. <laughs> for shame. Yeah. No, I would never watch Biebs without without paying for it. Mm-hmm. I would never do that. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, we'll be back uh, all week over on the Patreon page. Wednesday live chat, Friday power hour, Thursday movie club. And then a week from today, we'll be back once again with the proper, probably talking about the stuff that happens at this next uh, UFC fight. It's a light heavyweight contender bout featuring uh, Dominic Reyes, Reyes and uh, Jiri Prochaska. So that could be wild, man. That could be uh, that could be some fun shit. Also, uh, Club Cub Swanson versus Giga Chica D's. Nailed on this thing. Pro- probably nailed that. How do you say that guy's name? 
Did you get your cutsy? Oh, see, you have no idea either. <laughs> Out here trying to be a capital G guy in the division. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Nailed it. So it's, you know, a couple, couple potentially fun fights on tap here this weekend. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, I wonder if Ben Askren feels more or less embarrassed about being involved with Triller once he finds out that a lot of people didn't even pay for the show. Yeah, Ben Askren might not even know you can steal the <laughs> He's out, there, he's out there in the woods chopping down trees and pulling a sled up the hill. He's, he's not out here. You know, he's not the slickest guy out here. He doesn't have his finger on the pulse. Well, he finds out that there's also free pornography on him. Well, he just gets ripped the plug right out of the wall. Never see him doesn't again. Want any of his, doesn't want any of his little wrestling. <laughs>